and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We are coaches and facilitators that believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So we work in one-on-one coaching settings, in group facilitation, experiences, and workshops, and we really have an amazing team. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I really have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to support Shift Your Mind. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand the reach of the podcast. We are so grateful for you listening, and we hope that 2022 is treating you well so far. Now to today's guest. Sian Bylock studies how performance anxiety can be exasperated or alleviated, and the simple strategies we use to ensure success under pressure. In addition to that, she's the president at Barnard College at Columbia University. If you are unfamiliar with Barnard, it is one of the most selective academic institutions in the U.S., Barnard is devoted to empowering exceptional women to change the world in the way we think about it. And Sian will talk about that mission throughout our conversation today. I think you'll get a sense for why she took that position and how it aligns with her personal mission on what she cares deeply about as a human being. Prior to her appointment as president, she served as the University of Chicago Executive Vice Provost, 
and she also worked in the psychology department and she has a lab. She's a researcher. Sian is somebody who not, who doesn't just lead. She also researches. She's a cognitive scientist by training. She's one of the world's leading experts on the brain science behind choking under pressure. Her book choke was tremendous. I highly recommend it. We'll talk about that in today's conversation. I think what you'll like most about Sian is that she is somebody who's very practical, but she also really appreciates research and data. She has an incredible TED talk that's been seen over two and a half million times. I recommend you check it out. And she's been featured on every kind of media outlet that you can imagine from New York Times to CNN to NPR, you name it. Sian has probably been on it. And we're just grateful that she came on the podcast and shared her Self and shared her research and shared how she is leading this incredible college. So pull out a pen and paper, get ready to take some notes and learn from Sian Bylock. Sian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I just got to talk to your wonderful assistant, Susan, <laughs> for about, I think it was seven minutes. And she mentioned she started uh, a year ago with you. So what a time for her to, to join your team uh, in the midst of a pandemic. And then you said, you know, you were struggling getting on or something to the effect of I can't do anything on my own. And so <laughs> I'd love actually to start there where you're in a position where you wear so many different hats. Uh, I mean, we're going to go into the different hats that you wear, but talk about support and how important support is for somebody who's the president of a university and someone who wears multiple hats like you do. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the hardest parts about being a successful leader is learning how to delegate and that you can't do everything. And the idea, I think about it from a cognitive science perspective, because I'm a cognitive scientist, and the idea is that we're limited capacity people. We can only focus on so many things at once. Um, we have a finite amount of attention. And that's why it's not good to drive and talk on the cell phone at the same time. And it's also why you can't lead an institution or a big organization or a team and not have other people around you. And so I think of it as sort of cognitive offloading. She's like my external brain in a way. And there are certain things I just don't have to pay so much attention to. Um, and so figuring out all the Zoom things or how to make a photocopy, I have the um, really the fortune of having folks that can help support me. But you know, I think that's sometimes hard when you go into a leadership role to let go. Um, you also know that not everything is going to get done exactly how you want it. And you, there is a level of sort of discipline of reminding yourself that you can't do everything and it's not good for anyone. And so I rely on Susan um, for many things. And, and it is true that I don't do much without her. We'll stay with the role of president, because when I think about a president of university and I've worked with a few athletic directors and universities, so I'm familiar a little bit with the dynamics I think about constituents and you have a board and you have students and you have faculty and you have alumni, it's just multifaceted. How do you handle, you know, serving the different constituents and how do you have clarity around who you serve at Barnard? Yeah. I mean, Barnard is a really interesting place um, for, for many people that know it, they know it as, you know, the premier institution that are developing women to go out and lead the world. Um, and for those of you who don't know it, Barnard is really focused on, on women and we have this great partnership with Columbia. So you get this small school along with the big institution and um, our students go out and change the world. So it's just such a special place. Um, but any university that one is running, you're, 
it's not about one leader making decisions. I think this is true at most organizations, but certainly true at an institution like Barnard. Um, we have faculty governance, so I don't make decisions about what faculty teach in the classroom. That's all around academic freedom. Faculty get to choose what they teach, when they teach, where they teach. Um, we have um, students who have interests that are not always in line with alums or faculty or staff. And really um, part of it is about having clarity around the mission of an institution and, and, make, and listening a lot and then making decisions that you feel um, advance that forward. But I actually, I guess you could call it messy, but I really love it. I, my favorite part of being in a leadership position is when other people have really good ideas and I get to help propel them forward. Again, it goes back to this model that you can think of your own brain, but you can also think of all these other brains as leading to one big brain. And so I like this idea that there are multiple people giving input with different perspectives. And I firmly believe that when you have different perspectives at the table and people can speak openly and honestly without fear of retribution or what's going to happen, you get the best ideas. You mentioned a mission and it sounded like the mission of Barnard has been established, change the world, empower women. I heard a lot of very clear elements of that. As you think about yourself as a leader, is there a personal mission or a philosophy that guides how you tend to lead? You know, it's aligned a lot with Barnard. You know, I want to have an impact and make the world a better place. Um, I'm a hugely competitive person, so I get a lot of actually pleasure from doing uh, my job well. And, you know, I have a lot of heartache when I don't. But, you know, whenever I think back to my research career focused on how people perform up to their potential in different situations, focused on how to make the educational environment the best. Um, when I think about my career as a university administrator, when I think about the work I do with companies and professional athletes and teams, you know, it's always about how to get people to perform up to their potential because when they do that, that's when we get the best outcomes. And so one of the reasons I was drawn to Barnard was because of that, right? Here's a place that is highly selective, academically intense, one of the best places to be in the world if you're a young woman who wants to, to strive and for, for the stars and how great to be at a place where you get to help shape that. I come from a field in sports psychology. I know you have elements of kinesiology in your background. And one of the things that I was always struck by in the sports psychology world were challenges that existed between the people that were in the field and the people doing the research. And I think about your background and you mentioned being a researcher and you've, you have a lab and it seems like you still are, are doing that work as you smile and nod mm -hmm. your head. And so I'm curious for you, when you get to sit back and observe the field and the research are there blind spots that you you see from people that are just in the field? And are there blind spots that you notice from people that are just doing the research, given that you straddle both of them? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And this is true for my work in sports, but also my work in education. Um, so I've done a lot of work in the classroom around math learning and performance, around test anxiety. Um, and I guess I would say it's not so much blind spots, but what is oftentimes missing is that connection between research and practice. I think in many fields, it's hard to make that transition. And we often do a poor job of training people to sit at that intersection. And so I see a lot of the time that there's amazing psychology, neuroscience research that doesn't get implemented into the classroom around learning. And there's amazing research in sports psychology that might not necessarily be getting to the athletes at the same time 
the athletes and coaches and the teachers don't have as many opportunities as they should to shape the research questions being asked, right? And so where I've done my best work is when I partnered with teachers or partnered with athletes or coaches to sort of do the research together, that's when the most interesting things come together. And maybe if you're listening closely, you're seeing a theme here. I like this idea of getting people at the table with really different backgrounds and perspectives focused on the same question or set of questions, because that's when you advance knowledge. That's when you have different outcomes. Yeah. The book and the person I think of when I think of you and I hear you talk is range and and David Epstein's book Mm -hmm. and David lives in DC. So I've gotten to spend time with him. Brilliant guy, uh, a thoughtful guy as you smile ear to ear as well. Um, but I'm thinking about you and the position you're in. And when I was in college and university, I majored in sociology. I minored in African-American studies. I had no freaking clue what I was going to do after that. And everyone's like, well, what are you going to do with this stuff, Brian? I don't know. I'm taking classes I'm interested in. But I hear you sort of say, hey, we want to have diverse views. And, and David's book sort of backed that up. I'm thinking of you and your journey and how you've got this psychology background and you really have been studying neuroscience and a lab and research and you've, you know, produced books. When did you sort of see yourself? Hey, I think I also want to be in leadership. And I guess this is a a two-part question, which I'm not supposed to do often, but so I want to know your journey, but I also want to know like advice that you give to these women that are studying and majoring in something, even at a liberal arts school, how you help guide them or help guide the culture at the university so that people find their niche or go more broad. How do you think about niche and broad and all that good stuff? Yeah, well, maybe I'll just start with a focus on the liberal arts, because I think most institutions that you think about, even a college within a large university is a liberal arts school, right? I I actually hate the term liberal arts because I don't think people understand it. Either they think you're indoctrinating liberal ideology or it's just arts and humanities. But the liberal arts just means an education across the arts and sciences, right? And that's what we're doing at Barnard. We're teaching students how to think not what to think, that's a really important distinction, but how to think. And we think the best way to learn how to think is not just to have art and humanities in your your portfolio of classes, but also to think computationally and empirically with data to think across different cultures and from different viewpoints. And so um, at Barnard and most liberal arts institutions across the country, which is an education you get at most colleges or universities, unless you're in an engineering or a business school specifically, you're getting those classes, hopefully that's allowing you to think across different areas. Um, And so I don't actually think you have to know what you want to do. Your major doesn't dictate your career path. I think that's true no matter where you go to school. Um, And we at Barnard know that within six months, a stat I like to brag about is um, over 90% of our students are in jobs or grad school. And those jobs are not dictated by their major. We have English majors that work at Google and chemistry majors that work in publishing and all in between. And so, um, you know, I think, the idea is to learn to think from different viewpoints to get lots of input and um, then to get some experience in internships or um, talking to people who've been in different fields. And one thing that I really push against with our students, and I think it was an impression I had too as a younger person is that your career path is gonna be linear, that you know exactly where you're going. I had no idea, Um, you know, I, was in, as an undergrad, I was a cognitive science major and I thought that it was amazing to be able to ask questions about human performance. And, you know, I followed that 
interest into graduate school. Um, but I went from just doing a PhD in kinesiology to doing an additional PhD in psychology. Uh, I went from studying sports to studying math and test taking and all in between in the business world. Um, I went from doing research to consulting to writing books for a popular audience. And then at some point I realized there was a whole system outside of my lab and outside of what I was doing outside the university, um, you know, that was a, a university setting. And that was really exciting. And I started getting interested in leadership in a university, but I never would have been able to tell you 10 years ago that I'd be where I am today. And I think that's okay. And I think it's okay to be uncomfortable and, and not know. Um, and so that's something I push a lot. I'm going to make some presumptions, but there are similarities in our journeys and there are differences in our journey. Sport being a on-ramp perhaps to interest in psychology was definitely for me, the on-ramp to psychology involved sport. Um, I know you were an athlete. You, you played at least three sports in my research. Um, some interesting positions, which perhaps we'll get into sports and choking. I know we're going to get into sports and choking. But also around test taking, one of the first things that happened to me when I finished my sports psychology uh, degree was my brother has a tutoring company that's based not too far from you in New York City. And I was talking to him one day and LeBron James was on the Miami Heat and struggling. And he was like, hey, what do you think's going on? I'm like, oh, look, I have no clue, but here are some theories uh, based on what I'm studying. And he said, gosh, that sounds a lot like what our kids are going through when they're taking tests or they're taking the ACTs or the SATs or whatever it might be. So I actually designed a whole program with their tutors for test taking and the mindset for test taking. And we applied all these sports psychology concepts to test taking. And I would do talks and then I'd work with the parents, which is a whole different conversation for <laughs> another day. But one of the things for me in my journey in my career is that I love sports psychology. I love learning about the tools and the best practices for performance. And what I've loved most in my journey is actually moving more towards working with leaders um, and the complexity that comes with leadership and that you typically can't tool leadership uh, like maybe you can on the performance side. So there are tools that can help you with mental performance, but I found on the leadership side, it's more about asking questions. It's more about helping my leaders and the executives that I work with think differently, open up possibilities, curiosity. And there are definitely overlaps, but I, I find them to be different when it comes to what's necessary to be a great performer and to execute and what's necessary to lead. So I'd love to just leave that open to you, given that you've spent a lot of time in the lab studying elite performance. Uh, you've worked with people. You have now been in the field and you're leading an institution. I'm, I'm becoming more and more drawn to the complexity uh, personally and that there aren't necessarily tools always. And sometimes you just have to kind of figure it out. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you or, or how you think about the idea of performance and leadership and how they might actually be very different at times. Well, in my book, Choke, I talk about the idea that the greatest performers sometimes aren't the best coaches. And one reason is that in athletics, especially, you know, performing at a high level, oftentimes much of what you're doing is outside of conscious control. You can't describe it so well, which was one of the reasons you do it so well. And there's been lots of situations where then you take an athlete and have them try and describe what they're doing in my research as well, others, and they, they can't. Um, and it's one of the reasons sometimes great 
players aren't great coaches because it's hard for them to understand the mistakes or the perspective of a novice or someone who is not as skilled as them. Um, I don't think it means you can't learn it. Uh, and I do think that you can learn to be a better leader, um, but it is complex. And some of that learning happens through experience, right? Having these different situations. And one thing that I think is so important is that leaders are constantly reflecting on their performance and have a cabinet around them that's giving them feedback about how they're doing, both positive and negative. Just having positive feedback, I think is horrible. Um, because that's actually how you learn, right? You could be in a situation and go through and not learn anything from it. Um, but if you're deliberately always focused on how you can get better, what you did work wrong, what you did well, it sort of gives you this, this inherent practice at, at, your, at your position. Do you, have, do you have any practices that force that function for yourself? Yeah, we do. You know, when something happens at Barnard, for example, um, we had a big fire in the dorms in the fall. Um, no one was hurt and, you know, it was started on accident. Um, but we do tabletop exercises afterwards to really break down what happened, um, to understand what went well, what we could do better. Um, you know, we're constantly reflecting on those practices, you know, in any event. We also try and do these sorts of exercises ahead of time, right, to, to get ready for stressful situations or situations that we think might occur. Um, of course, you know, the pandemic's a great one, right? No one thought that was coming or the people that thought it was there knew it was coming. We didn't all know. So a lot of that was doing it on the fly. Um, but we constantly are reflecting and trying to look at data on what's gone well and what hasn't. Data is like my biggest tool. Um, because another thing about being a leader is that you're not, can't have your hands in everything. And oftentimes it's really scary. It's like you have these blind spots, right? And so when everyone, when someone on my senior team says, students are saying X or alums are saying Y or faculty are saying this, how many, what are they saying, right? Oftentimes these loud voices carry the day and it turns out two parents have written in to ask about this, not 500. I mean, that makes a huge difference in terms of representing what's going on. And I find the best way to figure out and try and get through some of, I guess, the muck of the information is understanding quantitatively what the sort of um, grouping is. How many people are saying this? Who are we hearing from? What do we need to think about? Um, why do you think this or that? And it may be that just one person is saying something and then we should listen to them. But I find that it's so easy to be sloppy in terms of representing a view or a point. And then when that information gets to the decision maker, they really don't have a full view of what's happening. I want to come back to data in a minute, but you struck a nerve with me and I'm thinking about your website and you've got a beautiful website, sionbylock.com. I even think I pronounced your name right, which you did well. <laughs> hopefully I did okay with, passed that test. Um, but someone might go there and be like, okay, she is an author. She's a speaker. Let me watch her Ted talk. Okay. She's also, I went on your Instagram. You've got mom life tagged, whatever that means on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm not much of an Instagram person. You know, you're a researcher, you've got this lab focus. Like where's, where's the focus? I'm president of the university. And so for, for you, I'm thinking of how do you know what to say yes to and what to say no to? There's all this exciting opportunities to go explore and learn about or research. How do you de decipher what to say yes to and what to say no to? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'll say that 
I'm a big proponent of having multiple selves. Um, all the research is pretty clear about that, that having multiple aspects of your own identity that you can, can enjoy and be focused on is really a good mental health buffer. Because when I get you know, slammed in my present life, I can go home and hug my daughter. Um, and when I, you know, I'm having a frustrating day with faculty or students, I can work on a research paper with my postdoc, right? And so there's actually really an important um, aspect of having these multiple aspects of who you are. Um, saying no and knowing what to focus on, you know, is never easy. For me, I, it's all about my organizational systems. You've already heard that I offload things on the folks around me that are there to support me, but I also have, um, you know, a, a spreadsheet with the talks I've said yes to, the talks I've said no to. We try and map out my calendar, and I actually am not given all the discretion in the world because I would say yes to everything if I could. And so I actually, again, put in boundaries, cognitive boundaries, in a way by having other people telling me, no, you can't do this, or you really need to think about this. And so the rule is I'm not allowed to say yes to anything right away. I have to wait and talk to my team about it. Um, and if I really want to do it, I get to do it. But the whole idea is that I put these systems in place to deal with one of my biases, which is wanting to do everything and make people happy. Um, and so it's hard, but I try and do things that interest me that I think will have impact. And, um, you know, it's hard not to be able to do everything. Makes sense. I mentioned data and I want to go to gender, especially as it relates to what you talk about in the book, Choke, which by the way is over 10 years old. Um, so <laughs> I, it's interesting because I remember when the book came out and I was probably just really getting into my psychology journey. And um, actually, I think a lot of the students in the test taking world that I was working with in that tutoring company was like, have you read this book joke? And they're, they're sending me all your stuff, which I really enjoyed. Um, but one of the things you mentioned in choke are the changes and differences over the years in education as it relates to the SAT math scores in gender. So uh, in the 1980s, I think the numbers were something like 13 to one men to women in the 90th percentile for math, whereas in 2005, it was down to 2.8 uh, to one. So women have been just making massive strides as it relates to math. And you talk a lot about why that might be and how we can continue to improve as a society with some of the stereotypes that, that we put into place. So 2005, once again, 16, 17 years ago now, <laughs> as I check my math, uh, and choke. 10 years ago now. So I'm curious for you, have you stayed with the research around um, gender and the SATs? Obviously, you're in a university setting, specifically around math. And what, what's going on now? Have we seen a continued change? Obviously, if people study the university system, the education system, we know that women are, are performing <laughs> at a really high level, um, getting into universities, scoring well in universities, but specifically as, as we talk about math, have we done a better job at talking about women in math in our society over the last 10 years? Have we made improvements and strides? Give us a state of the union as it relates to that. Yeah, I haven't looked at the data from the SATs and ACTs. And of course, everything in the last couple of years is going to be a little mucked up because of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, I do think we are doing a better job of opening up gateways and pipelines for women to succeed in math and science. Um, but, you know, it's if you look at the highest levels in a lot of these fields, we're still not doing a great job. 
If you look at pay inequity in these fields, if you look at who's getting full professorships and running these companies and sitting on boards, there's still a lack of women and a lack of diversity in general um, compared to where I think it should be. And you can talk about this from many different angles, what we should do and what you consider to be a just society. You could talk about it um, in that way. But for me, it's about having the best people at the table. And if you accept the premise that having folks with diverse viewpoints and diverse lived experiences lead to better outcomes because you're not talking to an echo chamber, then we've got to figure out a way to get the smartest people across the population, those who are willing to work the hardest across the population, um, across gender, across racial boundaries, across international lines together. And I still think we have an awful long way to go. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I think a place like Barnard is so special. At Barnard this past year, 35% of our graduates were math and science majors. And we, um, per capita of our uh, undergrads, we are number nine in any college or university that produce women who to go get PhDs in STEM. These women are, are more likely to come out of women-focused institutions. There's something special about having women leading and teaching you um, and about debunking the stereotype that women can't do it. And, you know, until we have gender parity at these highest levels, I think we still have a need to focus on this. So I guess the short answer is, I think we're continuing to make progress, but we have an awful long way to go. And um, to add an addendum to that short answer, I'm really worried about um, the outcome of the last two years and so many women leaving the workforce at all different sorts of levels, because um, I think that has the possibility to really set us back in terms of having the best and brightest minds at the table, and that's men and women, and that's really what I care about. It is amazing. I have a, a son and a daughter. They're 14 months apart. They're polar opposite with their personalities, um, but when I hear you say at Barnard, we really teach them how to think, not what to think. I'm curious, this is a selfish conversation. So if anyone doesn't have a daughter, you can you can mute this part. Um, but my daughter's defiant. She's strong. She's independent. I was telling Susan, your executive assistant, um, before you came on, I'm like, she's amazing. And she's going to be an incredible adult. And you know, I think she'd probably thrive at a school like the one you're at, but at, at five, it makes it a little tough for us to parent her. Um, you know, she doesn't exactly get in line and do what we want her to do. Um, but what are some of the qualities that inspire you that you see from your students when you see these women that are going to change the world, when you see how they're thinking, uh, not necessarily what they're thinking, what are the qualities that you are trying to inject into how they're thinking that I can selfishly try to continue to bring out of my daughter? Yeah, I mean, one is really to make sure you have a voice at the table and it's not talking over people, but it's um, certainly not sh shying away from speaking your opinion, but speaking your opinion in a way that doesn't essentially engender a defensive response from others, right? So maybe, you know, it sounds like some of what you've done with your leaders, have you thought about this? Or here is, you know, my experience, how does this play in? And I think, you know, our students come out being willing to speak their mind and be being willing to feel uncomfortable being out there. And I would say, you know, if you had to talk about one thing, we, we talk about at Barnard that the classroom is a brave space, not a safe space. I don't think everyone should feel comfortable in the classroom. I think it's totally okay to feel uncomfortable. And the question is, how do you then have faculty and students learn to be in a situation where they can speak their mind, where they can make mistakes? 
where they can ask questions and because that is how you get to the better outcomes. And so we're, um, Anna Quinlan, who's a famous author, graduated from Barnard. She always, she, one of her great quotes is that she majored in unafraid. And I think that goes along with, uh, with what we talk about at Barnard. We want young women who have failed, who feel okay taking risks and knowing that it's not gonna be perfect, who are willing to learn how to work in new systems, um, who wanna be in a system and change it, all that thing, all of that, it comes down to this sort of willingness to raise your hand, to take a risk, to look foolish and to feel uncomfortable. And I have a 10 year old daughter and it's something I say to her a lot. I talk to her about, you know, it's okay to feel uncomfortable. And it was funny because in this fall in New York city, um, I was Ubering her to school and um, she, she said, I want to walk the last three blocks by myself. I said, no, are you crazy? She said, does that make you feel uncomfortable? I oh, said, she got you. <laughs> and she's like, well, it's okay to be uncomfortable. And I was like, all right, get out of the car. <laughs> and I'll watch you from a distance. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I've been thinking a lot about courage and you said brave spaces. I could think of courageous spaces. Uh, and, and then I'm thinking of the word confidence and, the reason I'm thinking about this is I've worked with athletes for over a decade. And when I work with athletes, I say, Hey, what do you want to work on male, female? It doesn't matter. They almost all say, if I have confidence, I'll be good. And I actually would challenge them on that. But that was, that tended to be the most common answer was confidence in the corporate world with executives. I do think I've noticed a gender difference in how they think about confidence. I actually will hear women almost always say, yeah, there's some of that imposter syndrome and there's self-doubt. Um, and then the men, they actually have the same. They just don't project it outwardly. So when they get with me one-on-one, -on -one, they almost always talk about their own self-doubts and their questions. But if I listen to them when they're giving a talk or I listen to them when they're with their team, nobody would know. And so I want to just go into confidence a little bit here because the research on men and women and, and how they think about their confidence. Men tend to overthink of their competence and they tend to think that they're actually better and therefore they raise their hand and say, yeah, I can do that job. And, and women tend to undervalue their own competence. And so I'm curious as you're at this university and it, it sounds like you're saying, hey, we want you to have courage. I almost am thinking now like, well, we can have courage without confidence. Like how do we build the courage Maybe it's even more important than confidence, which is what a lot of sports psych professionals, including myself, focus on. Maybe it's teaching them to be brave and courageous, even if they feel self-doubt. Yeah. Riff with me on that. I love this because, first of all, I think everyone can feel like an imposter. It's not just women. And it's only narcissists don't, right? Oh, <laughs> if, if you I, don't I bet even that. most narcissists sometimes. <laughs> And there's actually a form of narcissism where you do feel like an imposter. And I think, you know, self-doubt can be a real tool, right? It gets you to listen to others, to assess the situation, to constantly look for feedback and data. And um, I, I agree, like, I don't need you to feel confident and good all the time. I need you to be willing to take that risk and be okay being uncomfortable. Um, we don't want you to be uncomfortable all the time. It's great to achieve things, but part of being out there and where I get the most satisfaction is when something is stressful and I don't know if I can do it all. And, you know, I, I, I figure out what route we need to take to get there. But I, I do believe that our minds are stretched the most when we have, when 
when we put that courage or that bravery out there, and we're less worried about whether um, we can do it or not. It's interesting. You mentioned discomfort with your daughter. You mentioned it in the classroom and you mentioned a lot in in the book and you talk about practicing stress and then you're going to be less likely to choke under pressure. Can you talk about a little bit, you know, we're, we're about 30 minutes in now. I think before we started recording, Sian goes, all right, so you're going to want to talk about choke. Uh, and I said, well, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's definitely how I found you. And I highly recommend the book. Um, I still work with athletes. I still work with salespeople that are executing and performing. So I still study performance quite a bit. And your book is, it's tremendous. So um, talk about practicing under stress and the value of that. Yeah, I think it's one of the really underlooked aspects of getting ready for any kind of performance. It's practicing in the kinds of conditions you're gonna perform under. And we often you know, study all the material for a test, but don't take practice tests. We often know the information for a pitch to a client, but don't actually practice pitching while people are watching us. And getting used to feeling uncomfortable, getting figuring out what you don't know is so important for success. And oftentimes people come up and say, oh, I choked on a test and they may have choked. They may have felt a lot of pressure and performed more poorly than expected, but it may be that they actually didn't know they didn't know the information. And you get some of that by practicing under pressure. And it's much better to figure that out beforehand than during the actual situation. And the cool thing is, is that we're great at learning by analogy. We don't have to mimic the exact same level of pressure. If you're giving a talk or pitch to a client, do it in front of a couple other people. If no one will watch you, do it in front of the mirror. We know that the mirror makes us more self-conscious. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm really stressed about a talk I'm gonna give, uh, I write out the first paragraph. I, I, I get it and I practice it. I get it to the level where I feel more confident or where I've gotten used to feeling uncomfortable with it. As I'm hearing you talk about that, I go to myself and I think about, all right, what what situations am I in where I could potentially choke? Hey, a podcast, I could choke right now. It, it's happened before. It'll probably happen again. Um, but I think about my capacity to do this in an open-ended approach. Look, I've got notes. I've read your book. I'm taking notes. I prepare and I've done now over, I think, 260 of these. So I kind of know what I'm doing at this point. And I ask people questions all day, every day. So I do pretty well in open-ended environments, like giving a speech. I'm pretty good at, I can find my way, especially when I'm competent at the thing that I'm talking about. Um, I think about even sports, if I'm playing basketball or soccer or hockey, uh, those types of sports that are open-ended, I, I tend to not really choke as much or perform less than my capabilities. But then I think about a sport like golf and I think about hitting my driver and, or I think of even reading out loud. So if you gave me a script that I was going to read out loud, I think about the holidays, like I'm Jewish. We, we, we read over Passover. I still like stutter over my words. When I read to my kids, I still, I still struggle sometimes um, to read to them at night. Um, so for me, like the close ended stuff where I have to execute perfectly. And it's just about doing the same thing over and over again, tend to be struggles for me where I don't necessarily perform well on them. But if I have open-ended opportunities to dance, so to speak, I can actually dance. That's the story for another day. But 
I'm actually good in the open-ended spaces. Did you ever research any of sort of close-ended choking compared to open-ended choking? No, I love that. And I love that way of describing it. And I think what you bring up is that we're, we have, there's individual differences in the types of situations that might set us off, right? So for others, you know, for you, Brian, having to read something verbatim is stressful because there's really an opportunity to check feedback and know if you messed up, right? Someone can say you messed up or not. It's harder to say that on the dance floor. Um, but for others, it's the exact opposite, right? Having to riff or be more creative, having that leeway, those multiple degrees of freedom is stressful, right? And so a lot of it is what you perceive to be a pressure situation. And it's very subjective, right? What's stressful to me is not stressful to you and vice versa. I have no problem speaking in public. I like to do it. I like when people are watching me. Um, I don't, I don't mind whether I have a script or not, but when I gave my TED talk, I had to memorize the whole talk. That was stressful um, because it was, I wasn't in what you say. I just didn't have the time and the leeway to sort of go off and be very creative, but I was not so stressed about the talk. I was stressed about remembering the talk um, and, and memorizing it. So, you know, it's different things for different people. It's definitely for me. And I think it's, it, it hurt me academically. I'd struggle when I had to give the right answer, but if you gave me an essay, I was, I was fine. Um, and I'm even thinking of when I was in seventh grade and we, you know, I was in a, a concert, a show, a play, and I just went off script and it was great and they loved it. But then there's another time when I was in high school, I gave a speech and I went off script and it went terribly. But for some reason, I still don't have the fear of taking those risks but there's definitely something there as far as how I'm, how I'm interpreting that close-ended approach. And you, you hit on freedom. And I think, so now I'm wondering, are values also drivers of how we interpret a situation? So I think autonomy is a big deal for me. And I, I go toward autonomy and I go toward freedom. And maybe there's a feeling of feeling stifled when I have to just execute that one thing I'm wondering about values and maybe if like my, like my mom, she probably won't listen to this, but she's very organized and everything. And you watch her play golf and every single shot is the same routine. I think it really helps her in a sport like that, but it might hinder her in another environment. I'm just wondering about values like organization and freedom. Are they drivers and how we even interpret a situation. I don't know if that makes any sense or if what I'm talking about is logical at all. So jump in here. Well, no, it's interesting. I mean, a lack of control is something that causes a lot of people, a lot of anxiety. And when we put people in, in an MRI machine and, and look at their brain, when we're, they're about to do something stressful, where we see the most sort of indication of neural alarm signals, this negative reactivity is not when they're actually doing the thing they find stressful. It's before when they're anticipating it and waiting for it. And so have knowing what's coming is actually helpful. It gives people a little bit more feeling of control, but there's also individual differences there because it seems like you like not having all that control or maybe that is your sense of control. You feel like it's easier when you are able to sort of dictate your outcome. And so I think what you're saying about values is how you perceive the situation. And again, to someone else, it may seem much better to just have to read what's on the, the 
the screen or the paper, um, but you are interpreting it very differently. And so I think, I think you could go back to this idea that what we value or what we find exciting or interesting um, dictates how stressful we find it to be. Yeah, I've always been curious about pressure because is pressure internal? Is it external? Uh, you smiled as soon as I said yes. that. What I was your- just going to say the answer is yes. It can be both, right? I mean, certainly we put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, in certain situations and, you know, something could be objectively not changed on the outside and you could feel horrible on the inside, right? I mean, we're often our own worst coaches um, and, you know, the things we say to ourselves in our head, we'd never say to a friend if we're trying to hype them up, right? That internal monologue of going into a situation or how we thought we did in a particular performance situation. Um, So certainly it can be internally generated, but then there's objective places where there's pressure, where they've got one shot to show what you know, a job interview, uh, a a penalty kick, a free throw, the SAT, right? There are different, this is, it's not one or the other. I love that. It's interesting because we talk about in, in psychology often working from the inside out and hey, being able to handle any environment. Well, here we are almost two years into a pandemic. I'm pretty sure the external environment of a pandemic has impacted people in in whatever way. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways it impacts people. One of the things as I was studying your background that I was fascinated by is that you have lived all over this country. You have lived, you know, in California, you've lived in the Midwest, in Michigan, you are living in New York City. What do you notice about those cultures and and being in those different types of environments about yourself? Do you find that you change based on those environments? Do you find that you work from the inside out to those environments? I would love to just learn about the cultures that you've uh, seen and and witnessed and experienced throughout your career. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and I think it also goes to the jobs and the experiences I've had. I definitely feel like great leaders are people who embody sort of the values, the institution, and then change, right? So I work within systems. There's no question about that. Even systems I don't love, I think that if you're going to lead an institution, you have to understand what values that institution holds, meaning the people that make it up, right? And then you work from within that. And I do, I morph somewhat to what's going on in a place that I am, whether it's the Midwest, New York City or California, or it's the kind of institution I'm at, whether it's Michigan State, University of Chicago or Barnard. Um, And part of the way that I find you can be most effective is understanding your environment. And so when I got to Barnard, for example, I spent the first month meeting every tenured faculty member on campus in their office to hear about their research and hear about the institution because I was coming in from the outside and I felt like there was no way I could do my job as a leader without understanding what values the people who ran it held and what they thought about the institution. So I had like 300 meetings in those two months where I just listened. Um, And it was, you know, that I think helps you understand how you can move the needle but you can't come in from the outside and just impose your values on a place. Uh, it's not good for anyone. You've got to understand what the ethos is and where you feel like you can have impact. It doesn't mean you don't change things and change things dramatically, but you've got to have that information to understand how to do it. Did you play goalie in soccer? Is that? Yeah. Oh, 
what were your parents saying when they're like, oh yeah, we want you to play. My younger brother played goalie. It makes sense. We're one of three boys, me and my older brother, hockey, soccer, whatever it was, he was going to have to be the goalie and we were going to pelt him with balls. Uh, <laughs> but, but for you, like, what was it like playing goalie? I think about what positions in certain sports are highly mental and, and tough to deal with. I think of a soccer goalie or a hockey goalie or lacrosse goalie. Uh, why did you go toward that? And what was that like for you? Well, I always like to sort of stand out and be <laughs> at the center of attention. And so I think that was a way to do that. But, you know, at the same time, it was so stressful. So I don't know if I would ever wish that on a child in the same way. I mean, I think if you gravitate towards it, it's exciting to be able to sort of to be at the center in that way, then it, it's fantastic. But I don't know, my parents you know, kind of let me run, run the show. And I think like your daughter was a pretty strong young woman and they followed after me in that way. And I give them credit for that, but it certainly was very stressful. And in fact, when I started playing other sports at a high level, like lacrosse, I wasn't goalie. I, I'd had sort of enough of um, that sort of uh, all eyes on you. Did you enjoy that more? Well, I think, you know, I enjoyed them both. And again, it goes back to these sort of multiple identities, right? You can find great, um, great excitement and joy in different aspects of what you do. And I think for me, always having those multiple identities and those multiple kind of aspects of who I was, was really important. I ran cross country, you know, that's a very different sport. I found that extremely challenging and difficult, um, but I loved it when the race was over. I, I'm, it's interesting when I, when I think about where you're at today and I am following you on social media and there's a lot of talk about mental health and college campuses, I, I spend time on college campuses. Counseling centers are often overwhelmed, overworked. Um, the infrastructure in place to help our students with their mental health is, is a really interesting place and space right now. And I think on one hand, students are raising their hand to say that they're struggling when perhaps my generation wasn't raising our hand and we, we just weren't. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just what it is. Um, maybe it was bad. Um, but as you think about mental health on, on college campuses, what's the vision there? What do you think needs to occur so that those students can best be served? Yeah, I think this is such an important topic. I mean, young people are more distressed than they've ever been. Um, and the pandemic has, has augmented that and really exacerbated it. And for us at Barnard, this is really, it's one of my key pillars is health and wellness. Um, you know, in addition to making sure we have the brightest students on campus and um, bringing people together from very different backgrounds to succeed, I don't think you can do well academically if you don't feel well outside the classroom. So we actually um, brought in our first chief health officer this year who oversees our counseling center, our pandemic response, our, um, our student health center, and we're building a whole health and wellness center right now. And our campaign is called Feel Well, Do Well. And the idea is that if you don't feel okay in everything you're doing, it doesn't mean you can't be uncomfortable, but if you're not focused on your physical health, your mental health, your financial health, if you're not focused on these things, being successful in whatever you're interested in doing is gonna be a lot harder. And what that means is not talking about mental health and wellness next to the curriculum, it means 
bringing the faculty in. Um, a few years ago, we trained all of our frontline workers, dining hall workers, access attendants, faculty to think about signs of distress in students. We offer free counseling sessions for all our students. By the time Barnard students leave, almost 80% have gone and taken um, advantage of our free sessions. And this is so important because no one can do anything alone anymore. Just as we talked about leaders having this cognitively outsourcing, I believe we all need that support um, and lowering the barrier to entry to going to talk to someone, to having peer support, to understanding that when you are really interested in being successful in a certain area of your life, athletics, academics, work, both, that you have to pay attention to other areas of your life too. It's interesting. I've seen a therapist when it wasn't anything particular. I was like, oh, I want to go to see a therapist and, and see what that experience is like. And I, I enjoyed it. I have a coach who just coaches me and helps me deal with challenges. My wife deals with all kinds of stuff with me on a regular basis. Um, but I am interested and curious about how do we help people? And I'll even say young people decipher between what might be depression and what might be a breakup with somebody and, and how do we help them? Like you said, still learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, but then acknowledging that maybe exploring whether they have an anxiety disorder, like how do we make those distinctions and, and help them navigate those paths? Because from my perspective, I feel like people will often say, Oh, that's a mental health issue. And they'll throw that out there. And it may very well be that, but it also might be some adversity or some discomfort or a bad decision. Or, I mean, there's just a lot that goes into it. And I feel like we haven't done a great job discerning between that stuff in our society yet. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that it's normal to have ups and downs in your feelings and emotions. And I think, you know, what's been hard, for example, is that social media often portrays no ups and downs, like this sort of, we've heard this term toxic positivity, right? And so we know that, you know, data coming out of Facebook and others, you know, especially young girls are comparing themselves to these unrealistic ideals, right? So it's often quite easy to think, oh, there's something wrong with me, because these people on Instagram look very different. And are happy and always doing amazing stuff. But I would encourage any parent or young person to, to talk about these things, to explore different possibilities for even just to talk to someone. Is it like a counselor or a pediatrician or a teacher? Um, you know, are there prolonged periods of distress that you would want to change something about, right? And I think that's when it's about trying to tap into all of the support structures around you. And, some students and, and young people are lucky to have more of those support structures than others, um, but even a friend, right? I think we often, especially young women get into trouble and thinking they have to do everything themselves and do it perfectly. And that's showing signs of distress. And this is true for men and women is sort of a weakness. And I would argue that, you know, the opposite is true. My last question, because I know you have a lot going on is, around competition and competing. You started our conversation by saying, I'm competitive. I enjoy competing. I enjoy, you've even said over the course of our conversation, I enjoy the spotlight and, and let's go. Like, I want to compete. I work with an executive and we just started our work together. And, and she said to me, competitiveness is a blessing and a curse for me. And I think it helps me in a lot of ways, but it also can get in the way in a lot of ways. 
if someone were to say that to you, what would you say back to them? Oh, I think that's true, right? I am really competitive and I will work hard to get to an outcome, but you always have to check and make sure it's the outcome you want to get to, right? And so I think for me, it's constantly saying, you know, I want my institution to be better at X, Y, or Z, but why? What are the underlying principles? Do we really need to be better at X, Y, or Z, or do we need to do it a different way? And so I find that, you know, having a little bit of self-knowledge, it's kind of a joke, an open joke about my competitiveness, but I always then have to check it, right? Am I being competitive for the right reasons? Are we doing this in the right way? Um, But I do think, like, it's got to be fun to work hard in whatever you're doing, and you know, I think that's also why we talk to students about pursuing their passions and their their majors. They're going to get a job if they come out of Barnard. The question is, what do they do now that they're passionate about that will contribute to wherever they go? And so I do think like there's an important element of finding some joy in what you do or trying to find joy in what you do. And again, that doesn't mean not being uncomfortable, but it means getting excited, um, you know, liking where you're going, enjoying the process and, um, you know, putting more of an emphasis on that is good. Well, my commencement speaker was Billy Joel and he said, love what you do and do what you love. Uh, I think (laughs) there's a little part of it. There's more to it than that, but he likes to simplify things and he sang. So it was a great commencement speech. Yeah, that's Uh, pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, Sian, so people can find you at your website, Sian Bylock. I know all your information is there. We'll put it in the show notes. S-I-A-N-B-I-L-O-C-K. B-E-I. Oh, I spelled it wrong. You know what? I actually spelled it right on my notes. I spelled it wrong. (laughs) That was your choke moment. There it is. It had to happen and we were going to have it. And there it is reading the exact thing. So B-E-I-L-O-C-K.com. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. If people are interested in something that you're passionate about, is there something that you want to shout out or give a megaphone to something that you're really passionate about that you think people should learn more about? Yeah, well, folks can go read my book, Choke. Um, watch my TED talk uh, and also follow me on Instagram at Prez, P-R-E-S, Bylock um, and on, on Twitter at Sion Bylock. Perfect. I'm on Twitter as well, Brian Levinson, and you're also on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Sion, this has been great. I'm a big fan of yours. Thanks for all that you continue to do for the world of psychology, but the world of our, our young people and pouring into their hearts and souls and spirits. And maybe I'll come up on a college visit in, what is it, gosh, 12 years, 11 years. We'll see. We'll see where Marin wants, what she wants to do. And I'm sure she's going <laughs> to guide us. Um, and I might be emailing you along the way to say, hey, do you have any advice for how we can uh, continue to nurture her nature? But I appreciate you. And, and thanks so much for giving the time. I, it really means the world to me. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I am really competitive and I will work hard to get to an outcome, but you always have to check and make sure it's the outcome you want to get to, right? And so I think for me, it's constantly saying, you know, I want my institution to be better at X, Y, or Z, but why? What are the underlying principles? Do we really need to be better at X, Y, or Z, or do we need to do it a different way? And so... I find that, you know, having a little bit of self-knowledge, it's kind of a joke, an open joke about my competitiveness, but I always then have to check it, right? Am I being competitive for the right reasons? Are we doing this in the right way?